So in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to do the sermon a little bit differently this morning. I'm going to spend a little bit of time building a case for what we're going to look at in Matthew 14. Uh, but the question of the morning is this. If you feared less, what more would you do? If you feared less, what more would you do? Watch the screen. For the next four Sundays at Green Tree Community Church, we're going to explore the question, if I feared less, what more would I do? Wow, that's a really good question. This, I would quit my job and stay at home to raise my girls. I would speak more. I would work less. I would travel more and do only nonprofit work. Probably do more extreme sports. Being vulnerable, I guess putting myself out there in a way that I'm uncomfortable with. Volunteer more, I would probably um, take more initiative to do things that I really enjoy. More things in business. Take more chances. Be more adventurous. I would proclaim the gospel more. I would be bolder to tell people directly about Jesus. Be more open to people my age about my faith. Probably be more bold in serving and Uh, what I wore and where I went. Definitely be more daring as far as spreading the word, standing up for what I believe in. So that gives you a little bit of a taste of where we're headed uh, this morning and for the next several weeks. Let me give you the sermon in a sentence as we begin this morning. It's very short this week. Uh, God calls every disciple of Jesus to a life of Christ-like generosity. God calls every disciple of Jesus to a life of Christ-like generosity. So the video asks the question, if you feared less, what more would you do? Over the next three weeks, uh, we're preparing, we're kind of setting the table for uh, what we do annually at Green Tree, which is called Provision Sunday. Provision Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. Uh, before Easter, that's good. I know what month I'm in. Before Thanksgiving, which will be on November the 22nd this year. And it's the Sunday where we bring our financial promises for uh, the next two years to, uh, together. And we bring those forward and we celebrate God's faithfulness and God's goodness to his people. So we're going to be spending the next three weeks preparing for Vision Sunday. So over the last two years, just to give you a real quick flyby, uh, in case you're new or if you've just been here more recently... Uh, our theme for the last couple of years has been called Move, a journey into radical generosity. So what we've been praying for is that God would create a radical heart of generosity collectively within the Green Tree Church community, but in particular then in each one of our hearts individually. And we use three words to describe the ministries that we were hoping that God would, would give us generous hearts towards so that we could be faithful in this calling. The first one was we asked that God... Uh, would give us the ability to move hearts. And the notion there is the uh, idea of bringing people to Christ, sharing the good news of the gospel with them, seeing them come to faith, and then all of us growing together as disciples, seeing our hearts being transformed more into the image of Jesus. So that happens on a lot of levels at Green Tree. We support, financially we support ministry to our children. Think about our, our you know, all the, all the couple hundred kids that were downstairs in the last 
hour this morning, and a bunch of you are in the room this morning with us. We're so happy to have you in here with us this morning. Uh, our student ministry to middle school, high school students, our Stephen ministry that cares for the broken and the hurting, our women's teaching ministry, our, our Bible studies, our small groups, all of that falls under the umbrella of uh, moving hearts. Then secondly, we ask God that he would give us the, the provision, the ability to supply for moving home. And you're sitting in the answer to that prayer this morning. God has allowed us the opportunity to have a permanent uh, ministry and worship space here at 100 Kirkwood Place. But we also were praying that God would spare us from our own tunnel vision, from our own just making it all about us and forgetting that there's a hurting and broken world out there. So the third word we used in move was move beyond. So whether that's a local, a national, or an international ministry that we support, we want to make sure that we are giving of our resources to the kingdom of God and not just the little corner that is represented by Green Tree Community Church. So that's where we've been for the last couple of years. And we've asked that God would, would intentionally begin or continue in our lives a lifelong discipleship journey, a lifelong discipleship journey of godly, Christ-like generosity. And I think it is safe to say as we sit here today that God has certainly been growing us as a congregation. And I've heard lots of stories that you've shared with me about how God is growing you individually when it comes to the notion of Christ-like generosity. But I want to be wise. I want to try to be a good steward of uh, our, our time of worship intellectually this morning. I want to make sure that we can recognize uh, what this really means. When I say godly Christ-like generosity, what springs to mind? Well, probably if we kind of pass the microphone around the room, we get lots of different answers. So we're going to spend some time this morning defining terms because I think it's very important we understand what that term means. And then we also, for the second part of the sermon, we want to acknowledge that there's an obstacle that perhaps stands in our way and what would God want us to know about that. So today we're going to look at, at that biblical definition of godly Christ-like generosity. And then we want to identify the, the obstacles that may be in the pathway. Let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to worship you this morning. Lord, we thank you for this, this new home. Uh, and we have some hot chocolate stains on our sidewalk outside. So we've really moved in. Uh, we, we we're home. Uh, in the temporal sense that uh, this side of heaven, you've given us a place from which to worship you, uh, to share your gospel with others. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in your calling in our lives. Father, we thank you that you give us your word as a lamp to our feet, as a light to our path. Uh, David said, I've, I've written God's law on my heart in order that I wouldn't sin against him. Lord, we, we come this morning seeking your word, uh, seeking what you say to us, not what the pastor might think or the pastor might say, but what is God's word and how does it apply to our hearts? So Father, we pray as we, as we seek to uh, unpack this idea of a godly, Christ-like, generous heart uh, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. Lord, forgive me my sin. Don't let me uh, be an obstacle for any learning that you want us to have this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a very quick flyby of a definition of biblical, Christ-like, godly generosity. This does not say everything there is to say what the Bible says about generosity, but I, I, will, I will tell you this. If you jot these down, I'm going to give you six observations. If you jot them down, you dwell on them, and you think about them, you could spend the rest of your life uh, looking at these statements, and it would serve you well in the area of Christ-like generosity. The first thing 
that we need to understand. And by the way, let me, let me pause for just a second. I'm going to look at a whole bunch of different scripture verses for about the next 10 minutes, and we'll eventually get to Matthew. The scripture verses that I'm going to look at will be on the screen for you to be able to follow. The first thing is this. We need to understand stewardship versus ownership. We're called stewards of all that God has given. So a lot of times I will say my house or my car or my clothes. And what I should be saying is the house that God has loaned me or the the car that God has, has made me overseer of. I am a manager of those resources. I don't actually own them. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you look at what God says about creating the world. God says after he's created mankind, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, not have ownership, have dominion over it. I've given you every plant, every tree, every beast, every bird, right? So God has given. God is putting these things in our possession in order for us to steward them. In verse 15 of chapter 2, it says that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it or, or to manage it, to oversee it. If you skip ahead to Psalm 24, the psalmist puts it this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and those who dwell therein. So both uh, things and beasts and the cosmos and people, we all belong to the Lord. So we're talking about stewardship. You can't talk about generosity without understanding that we're not owners. I don't give God what's mine. If I, if I do something generous towards another person, I might say, well, I gave them some time in order to help them. No, I stewarded the time that God has given me in a way that was generous towards another person. So anybody know what that is? You see that? Steve, you know what that is? It's just a little, just a little tile. I'm not sure exactly what it's made of, but you'll notice that it's, it's chipped. So Michael Porter loaned me his, uh, his fire pit a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he brought it over, put it in my backyard, and I, and I had a fire and had some, some guys over, and we hung out. Uh, and then uh, last week, we had a harvest party, right? And I, we needed a couple extra fire pits. I said, Porter, I'll bring your fire pit back. Uh, we'll put it out in the parking lot, and then we could, we could take it home after we're done with it. And, and his fire pit has it's a square fire pit, and all around the outer edges are these tile, tiles, which I was absolutely certain were actually attached to the fire pit. So I picked up the fire pit and I turned it on its side. And the the 48 tiles that were on the outside uh, uh, hit the concrete and quickly became the 77 pieces of tile that were part of the... So does anybody know where I can get a good deal on tile? Because I got to go and replace Porter's tiles. I think I'm headed to Lowe's at some point this afternoon before I go home. Why why is that important? Because not my fire pit. I, I, I broke Porter's fire pit, right? It's not my stuff, it's God's. I'm responsible to steward it. And anybody who's sitting here has any responsibility goes, yeah, you better get those tiles before you go back to Porter and you better hope somebody makes a color that close or close to it. I don't want to take them purple tiles for his, for that looks like kind of a rusty red kind of color because I was the steward of the fire pit. God says we're stewards, we're not owners of his creation. The second thing we need to understand if God is going to build in us his character of generosity is we need to understand the actual generosity of God himself. You see, God isn't saying, I'd like for you to be generous. I'm not too worried about it in my own existence. You go be generous and that'll be enough. God's asking us to reflect his generosity to the world. So one of my very favorite verses in all the Bible, this would absolutely be in my top 10, is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. Paul's speaking about the cross. He's talking about how Jesus gave everything he possibly could in order to redeem us. There's, a pas- there's another passage in Philippians chapter 2, which says this, have this same mind in you as Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul's saying, you should think the same way Jesus thinks. How does Jesus think? Who, although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus, how, how generous was Jesus to you and me when it came to salvation? He gave everything. So Paul says that's how you should think. You should think the same way God thinks about generosity. It should, as a disciple, set the tone for your life. Thirdly, I believe a biblical generosity following the character of God means that every day I give my emotions and and my intellect to the lordship of Jesus. In other words, I cognitively say every day, both with my emotions and with my brain, Lord, you're in charge. I'm not. I want to follow you. So Paul is talking to some of his friends in Corinth, and he's talking about a group of people that live in the region of Macedonia. So they're called the Macedonian Christians. And they're some of the poorest Christians that Paul ever encountered. And he's talking to the Corinthians about the Macedonians' generosity. Because although they were extraordinarily poor, they were extraordinarily generous. And Paul's trying to explain why. And he says, they gave themselves first to whom? Gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. Please don't ever give yourself to Green Tree Community Church. Don't do that. That's not right. Yes, we, we, we become members of Green Tree. Yes, we want to be faithful to this local congregation. But we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus. And we follow him. That's how we discern his will. That's how we know he's called us to be generous. So we need to every day. This is not kind of a one-time deal where I go, oh, gave myself to the Lord uh, back in 1985. I'm good to go. No, every morning, every day as I wake up, I need to remind myself of that because I'm going to be tempted every day to take that back. Fourthly, not only do we understand we're stewards and not owners, Understand that God is setting the tone with his generosity and to give our emotions and our intellect to the lordship of Christ. But we need to learn to live within our means. We need to make sure our own financial house is in order. We need to learn to think correctly, biblically, about resources. So Paul's talking to Timothy. He's writing him a letter. Uh, and this one happens to be the first one he wrote. He wrote two. They're called First Timothy and Second Timothy, very creative titles. Uh, Timothy's a young pastor. And he's kind of learning the ropes. And Paul says to Timothy, you need to look at your own financial household and make sure that it's in line with how the Lord would have you think. And so he writes to him and he says this. Now there's great gain in godliness with contentment. If there's a word that does not describe most Americans, it's the word content. This is a huge struggle and the church is not void from it. How often this last week did you say, I would be a little happier if I only had fill in the blank. It might just be peace and quiet. You, know, you might say to your spouse, could you take the kids and take them outside? Because then I could be happy. It doesn't have to necessarily be material things, but, but every time you listen to the radio, every time you turn on the TV, it's all about what you don't have and how much you should have it. And we are not a content people. And Paul says, there's great gain with godliness, with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food, clothing, these, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those are pretty hard words. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Paul's saying to Timothy, and, and the Holy Spirit is saying to us today, individually as well as the church, we need to make sure that we are praying for contentment and seeking to, to practice a life of contentment in a world that, that shouts at us every day, do anything but that. This is an enormous hill for us to climb, yet we cannot consider the godly characteristic of generosity without this lesson. Fifthly, we also need to intentionally grow in generosity. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that says about you, abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I really did a lot of misspelling in that when I wrote it up yesterday. So you may abound in every, so that you may flourish in every good work. Paul says you practice it. You think about it. You go out and, 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 and you try it on for size and you do different kinds of, of generous activities and, and you allow God to work in those activities in your life. And I've mentioned to you, I'm reading this book called I Like Giving. Uh, and if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to, to get a copy or get it on Kindle and read it because it's just a bunch of fun stories about giving. So I'm reading this book and I'm having a, a really great time reading it. And I'm thinking, I, this just reminding me how much more I need to practice. And, and this is, again, not a story where, you know, people give like gigantic things. There are a couple of those, but most of them are little tiny little things. So last week I was on my way to Pittsburgh and I'm staying in a hotel in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. Now, there are great places in Ohio, but I wasn't at any of those. I was at a Hampton Inn on the side of the road, halfway between uh, Dayton and Columbus, and there's not a whole lot out there. So the, mor the, 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 the morning I get up and I go downstairs to get the free breakfast, right? You get a free breakfast when you pay them a whole bunch of money to stay at the hotel, but the breakfast is free, and, I'm, and it's, a, it's a dead spot. There's nobody around. There's one other person having a cup of coffee. I'm the only person eating breakfast in there, but there's a person who's managing the area, right? She's, she's taking care of it, making sure there's food out and that everything's the way it should be. And I don't know, probably a dozen times in 20 minutes, she came back and said, can I get you anything else? And I'm like, really? I'm, I'm good. I'd like to have you get me something, but I'm, uh, you know, it's all paper plates and stuff. I'm, I'm okay, but thank you. So I'm, I'm actually sitting there reading this book. I like giving while I'm eating my breakfast. And I realized there probably haven't been 10 people that ate breakfast here. And, and these folks probably, you know, she gets some of her money on tips. So she didn't do anything. She didn't carry anything out for me. She didn't do anything to earn a tip. And I reached in my wallet. I actually didn't have a ton of cash for me, but I pulled out a $5 bill and I handed it to her. And I said, hey, just thanks for having a serving attitude this morning, being willing to help me. She said, oh my gosh. Her eyes got really big. And she said, oh my. And then she said, oh my. And then she said a third time, I'm not kidding you. Oh my. And I thought, I wonder what I had gotten for 20. But <laughs> I didn't stop to say to her, you're a case study and I'm practicing generosity. Could you fill out this form and answer some questions for me? <laughs> right? I just walked away and I said, I just want you to have a nice day and, and thanks for being willing to serve. I don't know what her story was. I don't, I don't know if, you know, she, I don't know what she needed. It didn't matter. But how much better was my day from that moment? How much greater was it because I got to practice a little bit 
And I believe if we're going to grow in any area of our lives, it doesn't pick, pick one, but this morning we're talking about generosity. You want to be a better tenor, tennis player, go hit a bunch of tennis balls, right? This, this is a practical truth that applies to every part of our lives. If I'm going to see a godly Christ-like generosity in my life, I need to practice. And then the sixth one is this, we need to follow Jesus's teaching and understand that his benchmark for our giving is a minimum of 10%. Now, everybody just got real nervous. Oh, no, now he's going to start talking about tithing, and, and, and that, that just makes me real nervous. But, but I'm not talking about it. Jesus is talking about it. And let's listen carefully to what he says, because I think if we understand what he says, it will help us follow him faithfully. He's talking to a bunch of pastors, okay? So first of all, I'm on the hook right now, and you're not, right? Jesus is talking to a bunch of preachers his day and age who had gotten it terribly, terribly wrong. And they did everything they could to look good on the outside, but they didn't care what they looked like on the inside. And Jesus calls them to account. And he says, you guys are living the wrong way. This is about a change of heart, not a practice, not an outward practice. And so one of the things he says to them in Matthew 23 is this. He says, you scribes, you Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe, you give 10%. Okay, that's what the tithe means. You give 10% of your mint and your dill and your cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So let, just for a second, we're talking about spices that if, you, if I had some cumin on the end of my finger, it'd be, it'd be tough for you to see it from where you're sitting if you're halfway back. These are small, tiny spices. And Jesus says, you guys take, you pour out your spice on the table, you got a pile of spice and you figure out what 10% of that is, and then you make a big show by going around and making sure everybody knows that you tithe to the nth degree. Okay? And he says, you're trying to look good on the outside, but there's nothing good in your heart because I'm looking at the way you're living and you're neglecting things like mercy and justice and faithfulness. But now look at the correction. You should, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus says, I've set the bar for your giving, a minimum of 10%. It's there, but understand what I'm trying to get to in your life. Understand what I'm after. I am after hearts that love to give not just resources, but justice and mercy and faithfulness. I want to change your life. And when you make this commitment to me to give it this level, I'm going to transform your heart. And other things are going to become important to you in the correct order, in a godly way. So Jesus lays that out for us as a pathway to become like him as we seek to follow him. So we must pay careful attention to all of this, all six of these pieces of the puzzle. Because as they come together, what we will discover is that God's doing something radically different in our hearts. The pathway is clear for us. So I have to ask the question to myself, and I'm guessing maybe for some of you, why am I not already there yet? Why, why am I not just generous all the time? Why, why, why do I still struggle with this whole notion of the tithe? Why does that sometimes just kind of get in my mind? And I think about all the other things I could, I could do with that money. Why, why am I, have I not arrived? Why is the struggle? And it comes down in my mind to, to one word, and that word is fear. And there are lots of reasons for fear. Lots of reasons. I, if, I, if I give, I might not have enough left over. What happens if the, the economy tanks or I, or I lose my job or we have some kind of unexpected expense? Maybe I have something unexpected happen to my health and I won't have enough. I won't realize my dreams of maybe being able to do something or having something really special in my life. I think as, as, as many disciples as there are in the world, but let's just to this room, as many of us are in this room, 
we all have fears. They may be different. They, your, yours may be fear of, uh, of, of a job loss. My fear might be of uh, something else, but we all have those. They're, they're present in our lives, and they're what rob us of the joy of becoming generous people. And becoming generous in a godly, Christ-like way is a very joyful experience. Watch the screen. How old are you? 97. I'll be 98 in October. <laughs> I live in a retirement community. And we used to have a bus here to take people to the grocery store twice a week. And they gave that bus up. I don't know why. So a lot of people were stuck around here. Like my neighbor Joyce, who was a very shy person. She said to me, well, if they don't get another bus, they'll find another place for me to live. And she says, I just don't want to go anywhere else. I said, Joyce, I'll get you to the grocery store every week. But I lost my driver's license because somebody thought I was too old. But I didn't have a mark against me at all. I was heartbroken at that. I really was. It made me feel old. It made me feel useless. I am a good driver. I really am. I, I'm not fearful when I drive, but I'm very careful. Are you a hot No. Do you drive well, I drive 65, but I obey the rules, so I went to get it back. You make a promise, it's important for me to, to keep that promise if it's possible. And I passed it. <laughs> I'm on the earth, I'm here. If I can contribute, I should. Shouldn't we all? And not just think of ourselves? It's supposed to get real cold. Like I say, I don't have money to give, but I can give myself and my time. A lot of people in the world who don't have anybody who cares about them. So that's the way I felt. <laughs> We're asked to love our neighbor, be a friend. That will give you joy. I mean, I don't do this so you think I'm great. I don't even think of that. My daughter says, Mother, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And I'll say, well, okay. And like I say, I do what I please. I wouldn't do anything dangerous, but, you know. 
How about a cup of tea? Would you like a cup of tea and a muffin? Oh, I'm good. <laughs> I don't care what else happens to you today. You're going to have a better day from watching that. It's just amazing. And did you hear what she said? It's just she's having a great time. She's found that meaning in her life. So the question is, how, how do we move in this direction? That's where I want to just for a couple of minutes this morning, look at Matthew's gospel chapter 14. And I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to walk you through the passage uh, because it speaks to this question of fear. It, it speaks to this, the question of what kind of stunts are, are following Jesus into generosity. Um, the context of this is Jesus has just fed the 5,000. So he's just done this chapter 13 of Matthew. He's just done this amazing miracle, one of them, the most profound miracles of his ministry. And now it's time to move on to the next thing. And he says, it says in verse 22, now um, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. I want you to notice that he made them. Okay. So clearly the disciples are like, well, Jesus, we want to hang out with you. He's like, no, get in the boat and go. And they're like, no, 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 we'll just wait here. And finally, Jesus had to say, I'm the son of God. You're not getting the boat and go. And so they did, they get in the boat and they take off, but Jesus makes them. Why is he so insistent? Because Jesus is all about the lesson. He's all about wanting to teach us and draw out faith from our hearts and apply it to our lives so that we will learn to trust him and to follow him. Notice also in verse 24 that they get in the boat and they start going across the lake and they run into some trouble, right? They, they hit some turbulence in verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from land beaten by the, wind, the waves for the wind was against them. So not only does Jesus put him in the boat because he wants to teach him a lesson, but he also puts him in a boat and, and he frustrates them. They're trying to, to oar or paddle or, or use the sails or whatever, get across the lake, and they're not making a whole lot of progress. They're kind of out in the middle and they're kind of stuck because Jesus wants to create difficulty that will lead to opportunity to trust. Jesus is, is probably actually fairly pleased that the disciples are frustrated that they're not getting anywhere. And it may even be they're sitting there going, well, yeah, and Jesus isn't here to help us. You know, remember the last time we were in the boat and he calmed the winds and the waves and it all worked out okay, right? So, so they're probably extraordinarily frustrated. Why? Because it isn't going the way they want it to go. Just like you and I get frustrated when it doesn't go the way we want it to go. And yet Jesus inserts himself into our, our struggles, does he not? About the fourth watch of the night, about four in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus puts us in challenging circumstances. Jesus is about the lesson of faith, but he doesn't put us there and then walk away. Jesus inserts himself into our lives in order that he will ultimately be the teacher. So he not only inserts himself into the struggle, but he challenges their fear. Look at verses 26 and 27. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What Jesus is doing is challenging their emotional reaction. Why, why are you afraid? It's just me. And Jesus challenges my reactions of fear and your reactions of fear this morning. And he asks us the question, why are you afraid? And that is a great question, brothers and sisters. That is a wonderful question. Not only should we identify, I'm going to talk about that at the very end in just a couple of minutes. Not only should we name that which makes us fearful, but we should ask ourselves the question, why is that? What is it in my heart that is not trusting God at this particular moment? 
Now, Peter, who you, if you've read the Gospels, Peter kind of speaks up for the rest of the group, and he's, he's trying not to be afraid. He's trying to go in a different direction. He's trying to go in the direction of faith. So Peter says, Lord, if that's really you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter says, I'd like to get out of the boat and try this. If that's really you and your Lord over creation, let me come on out there. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says to Peter the same thing he says to anybody who responds in faith. He says, come on. Anytime I respond in faith to God, he says, Tom, that's right. Keep coming. Anytime I say, Lord, I'm going to trust you more than I'm going to trust myself or my circumstances. He says, now you're getting it right. Come on. And so he says to Peter, come on in. The water's great. Now you're only going to get it on the bottom of your feet, but come on in. This is pretty cool. And Peter initially responds in faith. And God, again, is saying the same thing to you in this morning. Come on. Come on and follow me. Come on and trust me. Test me and see if I don't walk with you and teach you about myself in this process. And Peter does great until he loses his focus, until it shifts away from Jesus to the potential risk. Look at verse 30. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water, came to Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind or when he saw kind of the waves crashing because of the wind, he was afraid. Now we have this picture, I think, and like you get a painting in your mind and the boat's over there and Jesus is over there and Peter's about halfway in between and he's, and he's like up to his shoulders in water. But that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says Peter was face to face with Jesus. He was standing right next to Jesus. He was looking him in the eyeball closer than I am to you, Marianne. And he then began to look around. Why? I'm not sure, but probably because he's just like the rest of us, right? And he began to look at potential harm. He had not started to sink at that moment. The waves were not hurting him at that particular moment. His fear was on what might happen. Peter succumbed to the paralyzing impact of what if. What if those waves get too big and Jesus can't handle them? He starts to look at the waves and then he begins to sink. For most of us, that which makes us fearful is what we would consider a potential risk, not necessarily a reality. But Jesus is ever faithful. He pulls Peter up. He saves him, right? Jesus immediately grabbed him by the hand, took hold of him. They got in the boat. And then he says to Peter, woe you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And then the winds calmed down and it says that all of the disciples, Peter included, worship Jesus. They finally got it right. You are the son of God. They began to worship him. And that's where that particular story in the life of Jesus ends. But I want to read for you just a couple of more verses because I want you to see Jesus reinforcing the lesson of faith. So when they cross over, they get out of the boat in the region of the Gerizans, and they, they're walking around. And when the men hear that Jesus is in town, they run all over the region and they bring them all who were sick, all that, any kind of, any kind of malady at all. And they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched were made well. What are the the people in that area doing? They're practicing faith. They're saying, Jesus, we know that you're the healer. And we, all we need to do is just get within, within arms. Like you just touch the edge of your garment. We know that's how powerful you all you are. And And it's as if I think Jesus is kind of saying to his disciples indirectly, look at this response of faith and look at what happens when people trust me. How long will you doubt? When I am not generous, when I am stingy, when I see money as mine, resources as mine, when I am reluctant to share with others, it's because I doubt the grace and the mercy of God. 
I doubt the generosity of my father. And the correct response should be a response of faith. So how do we apply this morning? I would say probably most of us want a godly Christ-like generosity in our lives. Probably most of us will say amen, yes. That's what I'm hoping for. And yet probably a lot of us, or I'll speak for myself, I'd say, no, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I get there sometimes, and then I kind of, that's kind of one foot forward, one foot back. But what keeps me from it? What, and this is the title of the sermon, what scares us? What kind of makes us nervous? What potentially could, could stop us in our tracks? And I think it would be wise for us to name it, to confess it to our Father, and to ask for a heart of joyful generosity. Say, Lord, here, here's, here's the fear in my life. Help me deal with that by faith, trusting in you, and take me to a different place. Henry Nouwen says this. Henry Nouwen says, every time I take a step in the direction of generosity, I know I am moving from fear to love. We've asked the question, if you feared less, what more would you do? And you're actually going to get a, a small booklet. I said a couple of Wednesdays ago, we didn't have a booklet. I was wrong. We do. The last booklet we gave you two years ago was 36 pages. This one's about eight. So we've, it, we, it's not, you can't even call it a booklet. It's a brochure. How's that? Um, you're gonna get, it says fearless on the front of it. And about six pages back, there's uh, a page that says pray and discuss. And then there's another page with some other follow-up. But that's really the, the, the application this morning. The application is an application of prayer. Lord, would you show me my own heart? Would you show me your faithfulness? Lord, would you create within me? Certainly this world needs to see Christians who have a godly, Christ-like generosity that's built in their lives in order that we might be a witness to his faithfulness, to his glory, and minister in his name in the world to which he has called us. Will you join us on the journey? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the journey that Jesus had with his disciples. We just looked at it so briefly this morning. But he was calling them as he's calling us this morning to trust, to believe, to respond in faith. So, Lord, over these next three or four weeks as we move to the time of Provision Sunday, Lord, I pray for us as a congregation, not just for the, the, the budget of this church, Lord, not that, that's part of it. But, Lord, the, my prayer is that you would change our hearts. You would change my heart. You'd continually be transforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus that we would be able to experience joy in ways that we haven't before because you're moving us to, to a new place. Father, we thank you for this new home. We, we would be remiss not to just, again, stop this morning and look around and say, Lord, thank you for, for doing this. And yet, Lord, there, there's more to the journey. There's more to following you. You want us to use this building as a springboard into this community for the gospel and for the grace of the Lord Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to teach us that we would join you on your journey for Green Tree Community Church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.